Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Tessa Hill, professor in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences in the Bodega Marine Laboratory who leads the Ocean Climate Lab at the University of California, Davis. Her research focuses on climate change, both past and present, and understanding the response of marine species to environmental changes. In this episode, we talk about climate change, exploring the deep sea, and the future of environmental research and policy. Specifically, we spend considerable time discussing ocean acidification and the impact of changing ocean chemistry on ecosystems such as seagrass. Additionally, we explore the growing need for collaboration between academia and industry in helping understand and mitigate our climate crisis. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Tessa Hill. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me and for coming out to beautiful Bodega Bay for the conversation. Yeah. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How'd you get to Davis and what got you interested in marine science? Mm. I think I was interested in marine science uh, as a very young child. I grew up near south of Seattle in a city called Tacoma, and I grew up sort of on the shores of Puget Sound. So I often tell people that I think marine science was sort of, I don't know if it was in my genetics, but it was (laughs) definitely in my childhood. Um, I went to college in Florida, to Eckerd College, Mm -hmm. a very small liberal arts college that has a a remarkably strong marine science program for undergraduates. And it had an amazing um, way of sort of shaping my life in a lot of really positive ways. I had a wonderful experience at this small college, got to get involved in research at a very young age, and really got sort of bitten by the research bug. Um, pursued my PhD at UC Santa Barbara and was lucky lucky to get a postdoc um, at UC Davis. And um, I was a postdoc at UC Davis for two years. That's sort of a research position that you take on uh, after your graduate work is done. And during that time, um, I was given the opportunity to apply for um, a, you know, a full-time tenure-track position at Davis to stay. Yeah, that's great. And I've been at Davis since. Was it hard transitioning from doing research on East Coast waters and then coming to the West Coast waters? Um, No, not at the time. I think actually in my earlier stages of my career, I did research in a lot of different places Mm -hmm. in the world. So between undergrad and graduate school, I did research um, in the Gulf of Mexico, on the Oregon coast, the California coast, the North Atlantic. So I like I traveled a lot to do research. Um, in, you know, more recent years, I've sort of specialized more in the California coast and the sort of the currents and the oceanography Mm -hmm. and the climate off the California coast. And so I'm a little bit more centered here now. But at that stage of my career, I really was sort of like excited to do research anywhere. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Is that common, I guess, to try different types of research throughout the beginning stages? Sure. I mean, I think... I always kind of tell students that it's a little bit like adding tools to your toolbox. So getting different experience as an undergraduate, like maybe working in some different labs as an undergraduate and then getting your graduate degree. And then maybe you do something slightly different in a research Mm -hmm. position after your graduate degree. Each time you do that, you're adding tools to that toolbox. And then you can, as a researcher or as a faculty member, you get to decide, you know, what tools you want to use that day. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And then before we hop into your specific research, when we were preparing for this podcast, we really were captivated by the article we read about the message in the bottle. Could you explain what that was? Sure. So um, I do, I do a lot of the research that I do is based on 
big ships. Um, I also do research that's coastally based. Um, a few years ago, I had an opportunity to go out on a research cruise that would um, use um, submersible submarines mm -hmm. to basically explore parts of the California coast that we had never seen before via submarine. And I actually couldn't go because I was teaching my summer class uh -huh. in Vadega, <laughs> but they let me participate as a shore-based scientist. And so um, they were actually just offshore here, just offshore Northern California in Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary in a part of the marine sanctuary that had never been seen before by submarine. And they were deploying submarines into the sanctuary. And um, I decided as a shore-based scientist that I would weave this into my class because I didn't want to miss much of what was going <laughs> yeah. on on the cruise. And so we were sitting here one day in my class watching a live stream of this sort of, you know, one of the first deployments into this part of the ocean that had never been explored before. And the submarine reaches the seafloor. And the very first thing that we all saw was a plastic bottle. And um, I'm not the only, you know, sort of oceanographer or deep sea scientist who has had, you know, an experience like that. It's actually fairly common in the deep sea research community that part of what we document in this place in the ocean that we've barely started to learn about, we document the human fingerprint. It's everywhere. Yeah. Um, in fact, I have a wonderful colleague at UC Santa Barbara, Dave Valentine. He and his students have spent several years now documenting essentially a field of DDT waste containers that were deposited, um, you know, decades ago by companies trying to sort of get rid of DDT, which is a pesticide that was banned in the United States. And they happened upon it accidentally on a research cruise. They found this sort of, you know, field of um, giant canisters of this pesticide waste that had, you know, the company had used the ocean as its disposal site. And so I think this is part of being an oceanographer at this point, part of being someone who cares about the surface of the ocean, but all the way to the deep, is understanding just how huge our human impact has been on the planet. Definitely. Even with talking with all these different professors of different backgrounds for us, it seems that from economists all the way to oceanographers to limnologists, everyone's talking about the human impact mm -hmm. and how their research is some way tied to the environmental crisis we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. It's just so pervasive yeah. at this point. Yeah. 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 And you talked about the use of summaries to explore. Mm -hmm. Two questions with that. One, what percent have we explored of the ocean? Because mm -hmm. there's always like these different stats that get yeah. pulled out. Yeah. And then also within the submarines, how common or how long have we been using those to document? Mm. These are great questions. I should know the answers right off the top <laughs> of my head and I maybe don't. But so the... The answer around the fraction of the ocean that we explored is um, it. There are a lot of different answers to that. Um, I think the like the percentage of the ocean floor that has been mapped at high resolution is like below twenty percent still. So when we think about looking at high resolution maps of like mountains or of the moon, we understand you know the surface of the Earth and the moon better than we do um, the deepest parts of the ocean. Um, Submarines were really um, brought into use initially um, for military reasons yeah. um, and then by uh, industry looking for oil or other mineral deposits. And then um, that technology sort of trickled into the scientific community. It really became um, extremely important in the scientific community in probably the 1960s, 1970s. And then there's been sort of a 
revolution around that work because we actually can do quite a lot of it now without humans in the submarines. Mm -hmm. So we used remotely operated vehicles. And so there are still, there's still quite a bit of research that's done with humans in the submarines. And there's great arguments for doing it that way. People see things and experience things and observe things differently when they're physically in the environment. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like cost and risk to human life, we actually can see a lot more of the ocean Mm -hmm. if we use some of these remote techniques. And that's actually what we were doing out here um, in that story I just told. There were were not actually people in the submarine. There was a remotely operated vehicle that was tethered to a ship at the surface, Mm -hmm. and it's basically being driven around by people at the surface. Uh, It's amazing technology. So just Think of all those like video games that people have played <laughs> where they've like driven vehicles around. Well, that is like, you know, you can do that in the deep sea. Wow. Um, and you're not putting any human lives at risk. And, um, you know, we can actually see and learn about a lot of the seafloor that way. So, so yeah, I mean, the, the technology has evolved and we use, you know, both technologies. We use the like humans in submarines technology and, yeah. the, and the remote to see the deep sea. That's fascinating. Very cool to see how technology is advancing and allowing more research to be done. Mm-hmm. Could you explain a bit more about how your research is performed? Because you started to touch on it with the different type of technologies, and how mm-hmm. you could be involved with the research that's offshore but while you're still on land. Mm-hmm. Could you just maybe break that down a bit more? Sure. So I'll just, I'll preface it by saying that I often tell people that I look at how climate change impacts the ocean and sort of the past, present, and future. And so there's sort of one foot of my research lab that's grounded in understanding past climate change. And then there's like one of our feet is really sitting in like today's ocean. And so to do that work, um, actually, we span, you know, a, a variety of different techniques. My students and I go out on research vessels. We take samples of water or sediments or corals from research mm-hmm. vessels. Um, we also do a work. We do a lot of that work, like right along the shore. We deploy instruments, you know, place instruments into the water, sort of watch what's happening today. Um, we do a lot of work in the lab. We do a lot of wet chemistry work so that we try to understand the chemistry of the seawater or the chemistry of the sediments or the corals that we collect, which I can tell you more about, um, in a little bit. Um, and we, um, we extensively collaborate with colleagues who are ecologists. And so they're under, they're trying to understand, how are living organisms being affected by climate change? And so we might do field work or lab-based experiments with those ecologists. And then I would say in the last five years, um, and some of this was influenced by the pandemic, but some of it actually started to happen before that, uh, my research group shifted also towards trying to think about Um, synthesis studies where we take a lot of research that has already been done and bring it together on one platform. And so you actually don't have to go in the field or the lab. You're pouring through, you know, maybe decades of research to try to pull it together Mm -hmm. in one place and say, you know, how can we see how the ocean has changed from like compiling existing data? And so there's a couple of examples of that. But one that I'll just mention is that we have this project where we've been trying to compile all of the publicly available oceanographic data for the U.S. West Coast. So this is like all the data that, for example, a a federal government lab might Mm. collect or um, federally or state-funded researchers. People tend to post their individual data sets publicly, but no one had ever brought them into one place. And so my students and I have been working on this for years, and we 
actually just posted a public data set that has over 14 million data points about the oceanography of the U.S. West Coast um, going back decades, and anyone can use it to ask and answer questions about how the ocean is changing. It's a public resource. That's amazing. Was there any particular reason that wasn't already unified or is it just an organization issue? it's um simply like logistics and funding yeah. we had we mm. we had to apply for research grants and tell people like we're not actually going to generate new data we're just going to work with like these mounds of data that already exist and we had to find funding agencies that were going to support that idea and actually it's something that worries me a little bit about the research that we we did all this work, um, but our funding is actually going to come to a close on that project. And I'm not sure how someone, me or someone else, is going to keep it as a living resource. So, you know, yeah. five years from now, it will be out of date if, if like, someone doesn't take that on. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is, how can we, moving forward, continue to update that document and because we've talked to a few other people about open sourcing mm -hmm. and it sounds like it is an open source mm -hmm. document. So yes. are people able to add their data as they collect it? They, um, I mean, they can pull all the data that we have and then add their data in. Mm. Um, but a part of what we're trying to arrange right now is sort of a handoff maybe to some federal agencies okay. where pe people would sort of keep a, you know, a home for the data where other people could submit, yeah. you know, new, new data sets. So, I mean, we're thinking about that. We're worried about it, but yeah. fundamentally, um, this is a tension in oceanography, and I actually think this probably exists in like all aspects of science. But funding agencies tend to want to want to like fund something new, like mm -hmm. what new thing are you going to do? Not like maintaining something old. Yeah, <laughs> and so there's a little bit, you know, we we create all these data sets, but there's a little, there's then there's this barrier to like, how do we get them all in one place? How do we quality control them? How do we archive them in a place that everyone can use? And I think it's, you know, it's a challenge that science is facing. Certainly, yeah, that's something we've seen. Like talking to all these different professors is at these institutes, there's often one person in charge of collecting all of the old data sure because no one had had the chance or the funding to do it before yeah and then with that did you guys have a chance to analyze the data yet or just unify it we have yeah so i have um i'm very lucky to be able to work with several graduate students as well as postdoctoral researchers on this project and uh, we have one paper that's already coming out about that data. We have multiple other papers that we're writing right now. Um, so yeah, all the students, um, and actually it's been a fun project because we've also been able to employ quite a few undergraduate students mm -hmm. from UC Davis on this work because there's a lot of just sort of regular, like things need to be downloaded and cleaned and organized. And there's sort of this regular work that has to be done day to day. Um, and that's that's been really fun to be able to mentor people at a variety of different career stages. But uh, yeah, so everybody involved in the project has also been working on interpreting. Yeah. 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 And could you define data cleaning? Really quick? That might mm. be a little rudimentary, but... Yeah, sure. I mean, in this case, what's happening is all these data might be coming from different sources. People might be using different instruments to collect the data. So we're doing some really basic work just to look at like, what are the what's the quality of the data set itself? Are there... Um, worries that we have about the instruments that have been used have they been able to like reproduce the data so we do sort of a scan of just what's the quality of the data 
and some data sets get removed at that stage. Yeah. Maybe they were collected using an instrument that's not as reliable as the rest in the data set. Um, but we also do a lot of um, just using a little bit of oceanographic knowledge. You can sort of quality control data because you can identify data that seems to be outliers. <laughs> and we're actually not removing anything. We just flag it. So if someone else comes and uses the data set, they see that sort of our initial screening where we've said, we're a little worried about sure. this cluster of data. You should look at it closely. It's not removed. It's still there. Um, but like if I were to plot up the data, I probably would remove sure. um, those data set because they look, you know, there are some reasons why, you know, sensors fail. Um, laboratory analyses are not always perfect. There's lots of reasons why data may not really be that useful. Um, so we do, we don't really data clean in a way that like removes things, mm -hmm. but we data clean in a way that like alerts other people that they should put thought into the data sets before using them. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And I'm assuming one of the points uh, that you guys are collecting and compiling is about ocean acidification, correct? It sure is. That's a, a big focus of the project. Yeah. Yes. Could you maybe expand a bit more about your personal research in ocean acidification? Sure. So... I think we're all aware that uh, due to a variety of different human activities, we are increasing the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So that happens through our fossil fuel emissions. It also happens through land use changes. There are contributions from agriculture, things like that. So we are changing the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It turns out that the ocean is a tremendous sponge for carbon dioxide. Um, if people, if everybody goes back and remembers their high school physics, you might recall that gases have different amounts of solubility in water. And so some gases enter water really easily and other gases have the tendency to not enter and be soluble in water. <clears throat> turns out carbon dioxide is very soluble in water. Okay. And so the ocean literally absorbs about 30% of what we put into the atmosphere. Wow. For a long time in the scientific community, people thought that was like, oh, thank goodness the ocean is absorbing 30% of what we're putting in the atmosphere. Otherwise, we'd really be in trouble. There'd be even more in the atmosphere than there is today. And then there was this slow recognition that that was actually influencing the chemistry of the ocean itself. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about ocean acidification. Um, carbon dioxide, um, as it enters seawater, becomes a weak acid, mm -hmm. carbonic acid. And it uh, fundamentally changes the pH of the seawater. It's subtle. It's not literally making the ocean an acid. It is making it more acidic. Um, but it is measurable. We can already measure this change as, as already started. And we can also sort of predict where that change will go in the future as long as we continue on the same trajectory in terms of carbon emissions. And um, it turns out a lot of organisms um, and ecosystems in the ocean were like very well adapted to the the chemistry of the seawater that we used to have mm -hmm. that is now changing. And so there's a variety of different ways that this impacts organisms in the ocean. And the first one that people became very um, concerned about was how organisms build their shells. Mm -hmm. So any organism that builds a shell, so like a coral reef that builds its hard parts or a clam that's building its shell, a mussel, um, a sea urchin that builds its like hard skeleton mm -hmm. with the spines, um, all of those hard parts rely on um, 
basically components of the seawater. And the availability of those components is determined by the chemistry of the seawater. And so as we change the chemistry of the seawater, we make it harder for all of those organisms to build their shells. Mm-hmm. What is the general like pH, say, of like the ocean, like right outside here? Yeah. So it was, you know, pre-industrial, the like, uh, so pre-CO2 emissions, um, the average ocean pH was 8.1. Okay. Um, and it is that I'm, I, you know, I say average because of course you could go to different places and it would be different and it also changes seasonally. Um, and that is because, uh, plants in the ocean that are using photosynthesis are every time photosynthesis is happening, they're actually removing carbon dioxide from the ocean. Um, and so if you're in a place where a lot of photosynthesis is happening, there would be less carbon dioxide mm-hmm. and that pH would actually be higher. Mm-hmm. If you're in a place where a lot of like decomposition of plant material or animal material is happening, so like decay and like, you know, animals or plants have died and or maybe you're in an environment where things are actually sort of breaking down, that carbon dioxide gets returned to the seawater. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you actually would naturally drive the pH a little bit lower. So there were always some shifts, you know, seasonally and in terms of location, but we're imposing a larger, uh, you know, a a shift on top of that um, that is due to our carbon dioxide emissions. Are we seeing a amplification, especially in the coral reefs as they're starting to bleach and die because we have emitted so much CO2, the pH is dropping and then those animals die and then decay and then further amplify mm. the pH dropping. Sure. So you're asking basically about positive feedbacks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, there are certainly places that you might see that. Um, I mean, one one thing is that the ocean is big and it's it's pretty well mixed. So, you know, the ocean is constantly be, being sort of churned around by wind and waves and it's always sort of, beca- you know, um, getting in equilibrium with the atmosphere. It's always interacting with the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so even those local changes then get sort of buffered or like smoothed out mm-hmm. by sort of the bigger processes that are happening around them. But it's certainly, um, we do see in the climate system in general, we see positive feedbacks like what you just described, where like yeah. one thing happens and it then sort of amplifies the next yeah, step. Definitely. Yeah. And have you guys looked into any solutions within like smaller areas, smaller local areas of, or if we increase the amount of plankton or different things that might help readjust that balance? Sure. So one of the things we've been doing here at Bodega Marine Lab for quite a while, over a decade, is raising organisms in the lab under these sort of future, more acidified conditions. And so um, this was done, uh, my ecologist colleagues led this work, and we've raised quite a few things in the lab, but we tend to sort of specialize in California or West Coast species. So things like oysters, mussels, sea urchins. And you can think about it a little bit like a time machine. We sort of have a laboratory tank that maintains um, maybe lower CO2 concentrations like pre-industrial, pre-human impact Um, And then there would be a tank next to it that we would basically set the chemistry like the year 2100. So we can sort of Mm -hmm. compare how the organisms respond. 
Um, and one of the things we found, you know, very early on in these experiments with things like oysters and mussels is that they tend to make thinner, weaker shells and they're more susceptible to predators. So if you then add a predator into the tank, the predator actually can will go after the animals with thinner and weaker shells. Um, but even without a predator, you can imagine with a thinner and weaker shell, you'd be more susceptible to like a crashing wave or, yeah. um, or drying out in the sun. So, but one of the other local environments we've been very interested in is seagrass meadows. So, um, seagrass is just like the grass on your lawn, but it has actually adapted to live in the water. So it's a, it's a grass just like on terrestrial systems. And if you go out and look at estuaries in California, so like, um, places along the coast where maybe a river or a stream is coming into like a bay and then you and then they, it opens up to the ocean. So you have like a calm um, bay like environment. Oftentimes they are covered in seagrass. This is, you know, a native species in California. And we um, we do quite a bit of work with uh, folks at Hog Island Oyster Company. And this is a long, a long-standing uh, collaboration, which I can tell you more about if you'd like to know. But at one point, we were sort of standing out looking at Tamales Bay, and our colleagues at Hog Island Oyster Company said, "You know, I wonder, could we figure out how much influence those seagrass meadows were having on the chemistry of the bay?" And we were, you know, our research team was like, "What a wonderful idea!" And so we started a um, several-year research project. Uh, where we placed sensors in the seagrass meadows basically to try to understand how the chemistry inside the meadow was different than the chemistry outside the meadow. And so this was directly asking, you know, answering your question, like, are there small local environments that actually might make this ocean acidification process not quite as bad? And what we found, we looked at, we studied, I think, six or seven estuaries in California over many years, and we were able to show that that the habitats inside the seagrass meadow um, were sort of less acidified than the, the habitats outside of the seagrass meadow. So anything living in the meadow or sort of in it, living in like the halo of the mm -hmm. seagrass meadow um, was basically experiencing lower carbon dioxide conditions because the seagrass itself is using photosynthesis and removing carbon dioxide from the water. And as a cool follow-up to that, uh, a member of our research team was able to actually raise, we had seagrass in the lab and oysters in the lab, and she actually sort of set up this experiment with like a low amount of seagrass, a medium amount of seagrass, a high amount of seagrass. And so the seagrass basically changed the chemistry of the water. We didn't manipulate it mm. in any way. The seagrass modified how much carbon dioxide there was in the water. And then she raised oysters in those tanks. And she was able to show that the ones with high seagrass, with like the lowest carbon dioxide, the oysters grew the fastest. Sure. And so that is, I mean, that doesn't solve our like bigger problem, right? Because sure. our bigger problem is carbon, you know, human caused carbon dioxide emissions. But it offers us some um, tools we can use locally that might sort of help that that problem, help address that problem or um, keep the worst mm -hmm. of that problem from coming. And so, you know, the main thing we learned from that is that everything we can do to restore and protect those seagrass meadows that we have on the U.S. West Coast is, is um is a step in protecting those environments from sort of mm -hmm. the oncoming carbon dioxide. Certainly. I have a few questions about that. Mm -hmm. 
are we able to purposely stress some of these animals that make these shells in a lab setting to make them more used to a more like acidic environment to then be able to reintroduce them? Yes. So we aren't really actively doing that as a research project, but it's certainly something. So I mentioned um, Hog Island Oyster Company. There is a very active community of aquaculture on the U.S. West Coast. So that's basically farming shellfish in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, these shellfish farmers tend to be small family-owned farms, um, but they are, you know, very interested in exactly the question you just yeah. asked, which is, you know, can we develop, are, the, are there genetic strains that might help us uh, be resilient to these changes in the future? And so there have been quite a few collaborations between the aquaculture industry and, uh, you know, academic research to try to identify those sort of genetic tools. Um and we've also there have been there are some other tools around you know when you're raising them in a farm setting you know what it, could you feed them more or could you feed them differently sure. um, that would actually help animals sort of be more resilient to these stressful conditions mm-hmm. and so I think all of those tools are really of interest to sort of the farming side of the industry. Um, it's it doesn't really change what's happening in like the natural environment, which is that yeah. things are sort of headed in one direction, and we can't like, you know, genetically modify the yeah. all the organisms Definitely. in the ocean to prepare them for climate change. It's not going to work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then when it comes to the animals, they struggle in a more acidic environment mm-hmm. overall. Mm-hmm. And then do the plants like it more? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in some cases, yes. So, in some cases, what we see is that there are. Um, you know, plankton or other photosynthetic organisms that will actually do well in these conditions. In general, though, the challenge is that carbon dioxide was never what was like limiting to plants in the ocean. So if you think about plants in your garden and like what limits their growth, you have to make sure that like you water your garden and you give it nutrients or fertilizers. Um, That's like what makes your vegetable garden grow bigger. Um, When we think about plants in the ocean, it's kind of similar. They're sitting in water. (laughs) (laughs) And what they're waiting for in terms of like what enables photosynthesis to really take off are those nutrients. And so there's like, you know, they're not being held back by the amount of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is everywhere. Yeah. So you can crank up the carbon dioxide and like the plants in the ocean, some of them will respond and some of them will just keep doing exactly what they're doing before. So there's not really a hope of, oh, this will cause more plant growth and eventually like raise the pH again. Well, since you've been a- you've been asking about a lot of like you know mitigation tactics, you know one of the ones that has been floated around for uh, decades now is that we could sort of fertilize the ocean with nutrients that plants would use. Um, and like ramp up plant growth in the ocean in order to uptake more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, the challenge is that there's always a domino effect, yes. right? So like when you if you create an area of the ocean with a huge amount of plant growth at the surface, that plant growth is eventually going to die out. It's going to sink to the deep sea. You're basically taking carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and exporting it or sinking it to the Mm. deep sea. It's going to degrade in the deep sea. And then you have like a pool, a mat of, you know, degrading plant material in the deep sea. So none of these um, techniques come without a consequence, right? If this was an easy problem to solve, we would have already solved it. Certainly. Yeah. And with regards to the shellfish and the other animals that are being directly impacted, 
you talked about the growing them in the lab and pretending it's going to be year you mm-hmm. know, 2100. Mm-hmm. What is the degree of the adaptive capacity of these animals and mm-hmm. how does that differ? Like how does adaptation differ from evolution? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think in general, what I would say is we do see scope for adaptation um, in the lab. And we see that like if we raise a whole bunch of oysters in the lab under these conditions and those oysters come from different families, so they have like slightly different genetics, they do not all respond exactly the same to these stressful conditions. And so we see, okay, there's a hint there, like some organisms in this tank are doing better than others. And so that tells us there's some capacity for adaptation, right? I think the challenge is that the rate at which we are changing the environment Mm -hmm. is so fast that for a lot of these organisms, it's too fast for for evolution to sort of keep up. And so we will, we're changing through climate change, through ocean acidification, we're changing things at a rate that may exceed these organisms' abilities to adapt. What, this is like a more broad question, but at what point did that rate of change kind of hit the point where it was just kind of too fast? That's a good question. I mean, I'm not sure that, um, I wish that I had like an evolutionary biologist sitting here with me to answer that question. Um, what I The way I would answer that is that in the scientific community, we really see sort of the impacts of climate change and ocean acidification starting to emerge from like you being able to see it compared to background. I mean, there's always background environmental variability, but being able to actually see the impacts of climate change emerge from that background signal, you know, probably happened in like the late 1990s, early 2000s. And so that is the point where people became sort of alarmed, like the climate change impact is no longer in sort of the envelope of normal variability. It's now like moved the ocean and and terrestrial habitats are experiencing this too, have moved into this new realm. Certainly. And so, I mean, I, it's been a while is yeah. my answer yeah. to that question. It's not new. We've We've known, we've been able to sort of see and understand that, you know, how climate change is impacting environments separate of natural variability for decades. Yeah. And then when you were talking about the ocean acidification being a gradual gradual process, you talked a bit about how there is a seasonal flux. Mm -hmm. Is that where the coastal carbon flux comes in? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, we think about the ocean... The way we've been talking about the ocean so far in this conversation is simply that it's upticking carbon dioxide mm-hmm. from, the, from the atmosphere. It's actually a little more complicated than that, of course. There are places that are like soaking it in at any given time, and there are places that are actually sort of exhaling carbon into the atmosphere. So like I said earlier, there's this constant exchange between the ocean and the atmosphere. Um, when we talk about coastal carbon flux or coastal carbon storage, we're usually thinking about are there habitats that you know, we um, can think about as as storing carbon for the future. And so one of the interesting things about seagrass meadows is that the actual grass itself, of course, is engaging in that photosynthesis we were talking about earlier. But there's also um, the part that's sort of the where the roots of the grass go into the sediments. So you could think about like when you walk through a forest, you think about like all the trees above you are engaging in photosynthesis, pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But we also think about sort of the soils below mm-hmm. the forest are storing a lot of carbon, right? Yeah. 
So the same thing happens in marine environments. So in seagrass meadows, what we see is that there's a lot of carbon being brought into the seagrass itself through photosynthesis, but there's a lot of stuff that gets kind of stuck in the in the seagrass, in its roots, in the sediments, in sort of the equivalent of soils mm-hmm. below the below the meadow. And what we've learned is that the carbon that gets trapped there is probably trapped for centuries. And it gets trapped more efficiently than just like an open estuary. So if we compare a seagrass meadow to just like an open mud flat, mm. there is more carbon being you know stored and pulled in essentially permanently below seagrass than there is in like an open bay. Yeah. Um, and so this is what we refer to as blue carbon. So oh, okay. uh, blue carbon are things like seagrass meadows and salt marshes in particular mm. that are actually like in, in the sediments below the habitat are storing a huge amount of carbon, just like we think about soils on land. Mm. And then from my rudimentary understanding of terrestrial carbon sequestration, mm-hmm. fungi play a large role in that. Mm. Do we have fungi in the ocean that are playing a role? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think the answer is certainly yes, but I'm def- that's beyond my oh. like area of expertise. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there. I would say there are certainly microbial processes that mm. are playing a role in that sequestration in these environments that I've been telling you about. And are there researchers looking at the breakdown of nutrients in these ocean sediment areas compared to soil and trying yes. to draw that bridge? Yes. So I think, um, you know, there's been a fair amount of work done trying to figure out you know, where can we um, sequester carbon, you know, forests, grasslands, agricultural habitat, seagrass meadows, salt marshes, um, all of those are very effective places to try to store carbon. The next logical question is, well, how do you store carbon there? The best way you do it is to basically preserve those habitats. You Mm -hmm. don't, you know, you don't, um, you basically conserve and protect them so that they continue storing as much carbon as they are today. And then anywhere where we maybe have lost those habitats. So some of those seagrass or salt marsh habitats have been lost due to um, our our uses of the coast, you know, our building of homes or businesses along the coast. Anywhere that we can basically build back salt marsh and seagrass habitats are going to be places that we reclaim some of that carbon storage. Yeah. And is the storage that takes place in the sediment, is that different from what goes on with the relationship with carbon in the photic zone? Um, it's all connected. So, you know, we think about the the photic zone is essentially anywhere at the sunlit zone of the ocean. And so that's the zone where you actually get photosynthesis happening because you need sunlight. And then, so you can imagine at the surface of the ocean, there are blooms of plankton, which are basically very small plant-like um, organisms. And so they're using photosynthesis at the surface and then they eventually die and they sink out. And we're talking about basically trapping that, you know, those, the the decaying organic material from that surface productivity, trapping mm-hmm. some of it for sort of long-term storage. Yeah, because when those organisms die and sink to the bottom, if there were seagrass there, it would use those nutrients to like grow and use more, and like that would help. Um, yeah, and s- some of it actually is not, there isn't really, it's not benefiting the seagrass necessarily. It just gets trapped there. Interesting. Um, just like sort of how like when you think about in a forest where like leaves fall mm-hmm. into the soil and they get sort of, you know, there's like layers of material that builds yeah. up below a forest. The same thing happens in seagrass meadows and salt marshes. Very interesting. 
And then I think we've started to touch on it, but could we maybe talk a bit more about some tangible changes we have seen in the ocean due to acidification or whatever else is happening? Sure. So, I mean, I think um, we did touch on this a little bit, but I think, you know, there's growing evidence that we can document these human impacts on the ocean. Um, Any environment in the ocean at this point is seeing multiple different stressors. So um, climate change in terms of the actual temperature may be changing at particular sites. The chemistry of the ocean in terms of ocean acidification may be changing. And then sort of hand in hand that with that, we see changes in oxygenation. So the amount of oxygen in the ocean water. And there are a variety of different reasons behind this, but one of the really fundamental ones is that as the ocean water warms up, it actually holds less oxygen. So a warmer ocean in the future actually will have less oxygen in it, just even if we did nothing else. Mm. And so we're seeing in any ocean environment, um, I would say we're seeing multiple different changes all at the same time. They could be temperature, oxygen, chemistry. You could see other human-caused changes like invasive species or pollution, things like that. Um, So I guess this is my roundabout way of trying to answer your question by saying we see a lot of these changes in the ocean, but it's complicated because Mm -hmm. it's not one thing that's changing. Yeah. And so we see, you know, habitats like coral reefs that are struggling because of all of those changes. Um, And we see evidence, uh, for example, we've had heat waves um, in this area of California um, in sort of between 2015, 2016 and there, we had like um, much warmer than normal ocean temperatures Mm -hmm. and we saw uh, die-offs of organisms. Mm -hmm. We also saw tropical species that you might expect to be in like San Diego or Mexico moving their way northward along the coast because those warm waters basically sort of facilitate, um, you know, warm water loving species to move. Yeah, I remember that year. It was a great year for fishing. Yes. Yeah. It was an interesting year for fishing. Yeah. Like you got probably really different species yeah, than you were used more, to. Yeah, bluefin tuna really mm-hmm. came up from Mexico. Right. Uh, that, right. That's rarely ever seen like that far north. Yeah. So I think some of the observations we can make around temperature in particular are fairly clear cut mm-hmm. in that way. And we've been making them for a while. Um and we, so we can watch sort of the march of these species. You know, each year people go out and do surveys in tide pools or mm-hmm. fishery surveys and can actually document that the species they're seeing are different than they saw in 1990 or 1980 or 1950. Are, are you aware of any scientists using the, like the commercial fishing logs as a way of documenting it? Certainly, yes. Um, in fact, there's some interesting work where people look at, um, you know, what what they can go out and sort of measure and catch today. And then they use the logs going back 100 mm-hmm. years and yeah. can actually sort of reconstruct how, how the fishery has changed. Very yeah. Talking about going back in the past, could you yeah. talk about how you guys have used some of the historic geological information to inform how some of these changes that we're seeing, how they might play out? Sure. My students and I are really interested in um, exploring 
past climate records in order to understand what the impacts of future climate change might be. And so we sort of look to the past with those kinds of questions. And um, for that reason, we tend to focus on the very near past. So we tend to, from from the perspective of a geologist, we work in very, very recent yeah. time periods. So we tend to work over, um, you know, the past couple thousand years, or maybe the past 10,000 years, or maybe even back to 20,000 years. But at this, you know, at this moment, my students and I don't tend to like, look much beyond that. So we're sort of thinking about one way to think about that is that the, you know, the, conf the configuration of the continents was exactly the same mm. in all of those time periods, the way that the ocean sort of worked was the same. Like the ocean currents that existed 10,000 years ago are the same sort of general ocean currents as far as we know. So the like boundary conditions are very, very, very similar, but we can still study how climate has changed through that time period. That's fascinating. Um, so we've had a, a recent paper that came out that was led by students in my lab where we um, pulled together all of the... Um, climate studies that we could find that spanned the past 10,000 years for the Western U.S. So it has both terrestrial uh, paleoclimate records as well as ocean paleoclimate records. And we basically looked at the, you know, how did the past 10,000 years evolve? And there are some interesting things in there. Like, for example, it's sort of in the middle of that time period where, um, we get start getting a lot more upwelling along the coast. Mm -hmm. So that's when, you know, cold water comes up from the deep um, up to the surface. And it sort of fuels um, a lot of the productivity at the surface because it brings a lot of nutrients with it. And um, but along with that, it drives some of that really cold water coming up to the surface drives the production of fog on the California coast. Uh -huh. And so we see an increase in um, the plant species and the tree species that are associated with fog um, showing up at that time period. So the ocean folks can tell us through their records, well, this is where we start to see upwelling really ramp up. And then the folks who study trees on land and records of trees on land can say, well, that's also when the redwoods really expanded wow. their, um, their sort of where they were found in California. And so there's these connections between the ocean and terrestrial climate, which are just really fascinating, I think. So, we, you know, I think part of we learn a couple of things from these these paleo perspectives. One is sort of how connected everything is. Mm -hmm. So when there's a a subtle change in the in the ocean or on land, we tend to see this sort of ripple effect um, across other systems. That makes a lot of sense. And then you briefly touched on it. Could you explain like what causes fog? Mm. I mean, in general, it's like basically moist air that is, you know, sitting over the, I mean, th this is marine, this is mm -hmm. like marine layer fog. So what yeah. causes fog on land is a similar process, but not exactly the mm -hmm. same, but like the coastal fog that we see that is like so characteristic of California in May and June mm -hmm. right now um, is that there's, you know, basically cold water at the surface um, and the, the um, atmosphere, the wind is sort of blowing over that cold water and actually picking up some of the moisture um, from the water. And then the land is warmer mm -hmm. than the ocean is. And so the land that actually sort of sets up um, a, a difference in pressure systems between the land and the ocean. And so the land tends to sort of then suck that moist air in mm. over the land. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a good tangible example of people could like recognize it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Especially along the coastal communities, everyone knows the June knows. gloom. Totally. That's right. <laughs> yep. May, gray, and June gloom. There you go. Yep.
And then transitioning out a little bit, you do a lot of outreach beyond your research. Can we talk a little bit about that? I guess yeah. starting with some of the education programs you do with K through 12 education as well as industry. Yeah, sure. So I was very fortunate to have um, a federal grant from the National Science Foundation for five years that supported my research group in working with future K through 12 science teachers. So these were UC Davis students who um, had declared their interest in going into um, science teaching in the future. So they were not yet teachers, but they're going to become teachers. Um, and these uh, were students through the Calteach program, which um, all of the UC schools have a program that basically supports students who want to go into K-12 teaching. So this is the Davis equivalent of that. And um, I got to do a, a series of really fun things with the students in this program. One is that we had a class every year where students worked with me to develop um educational modules about the ocean, about climate change, about marine ecosystems that they would use in a middle school classroom. And so we developed them, we sort of workshopped them. Some of them were student teaching, so they would go and use them in their classroom. We would come back maybe the next year and like tweak them. We worked with teachers in the Davis area who were in middle school and high school settings, and those teachers were using the modules and sort of adjusting them and, you know, making them better. And so over the course of five years, we were able, I think we worked on a dozen different modules. And, you know, I think five or six of those we ended up like really comfortable, really happy with that, like they're, they're posted publicly on my website, and they've been tested by both student teachers and teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was one exciting thing. And then we also got to, I was able to fund um, some of those future science teachers to come out and take classes at Bodega Marine Lab. Okay. Um, so each year, um, and actually I've been able to maintain that a little bit, even beyond the duration of the grant. So I pretty commonly have been able to host a couple of those sort of future science teachers to come out and live at the Marine Lab um, for six weeks over the summer, and they get to take these hands-on um, oceanography and marine science courses that we offer. And the whole idea is sort of, that we want future teachers to have this hands-on experience with the ocean. We want people to be able to teach about the ocean from a place of experience, of having like been to the ocean, mm -hmm. of experienced the ocean, of you know thought about research in the ocean, and then they go back and they become science teachers, and hopefully they you know they bring those experiences with them. Yeah, and you talked about breaking down the modules and getting it to five modules because mm -hmm. those were the successful modules. Could you define I guess what you're looking for in modules, like what makes it a good module. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was this like iter iterative process with students and uh, students who were preparing to teach and also existing teachers. Mm -hmm. And we were looking for a couple of things. We wanted what part of our goal was that we wanted students um doing hands-on experiments or working with real data. So all of the modules either have them experimenting with something or working with data that's maybe provided by our federal government or something like that. So they're not sort of made up. They're like, mm -hmm. they're real examples that the students were working with. And then we worked very closely with the teachers to align them with our, the science teaching standards so that mm -hmm. teachers, because that we, in California in particular, um, you can't really use things in the classroom unless you can figure out how they align to the the um, state and federal um, science standards. Okay. And so we did some of that work 
with teachers so that future teachers would be able to open up one of these modules and be like, oh, great, I can put this, you know, right in the unit when I talk about density, I can talk about seawater density, or right when I talk about when I talk about biodiversity, I can use this module on kelp forest biodiversity. So we did some sort of the of the pre planning for teachers around how does it fit into what you're required to teach Mm -hmm. um, in order to encourage them to like be able to actually use these modules about the ocean. Okay. That's right. It definitely seems like a great resource that was created. And then when you focus, so that seems like the public facing Mm -hmm. side of education, how does education extend to industry? Sure. So I, I mentioned this earlier, but we have this very long-standing partnership with Hog Island Oyster Company, and we also have other sort of similar partnerships. Although that one is um, at this point like really just fabulous and has existed for a long time, so I love talking about it. Um, we've been working with them, I think, for over fifteen years um, or somewhere around there. And I always have to remind people that this is an intellectual partnership. It's not that, I mean, there are industry partnerships where maybe there's an exchange of money. In this case, there was no exchange of money. We just were excited to work together. Um, They are, you know, a family-run farm on the California coast, uh, raising sustainable shellfish. And so all the things we were talking about earlier Mm -hmm. about risks and stresses to oysters and mussels and clams are risks and stresses to their business. Mm-hmm. And so we have worked together for a long time to basically sort of brainstorm research questions that were interesting to us as researchers and also interesting to them in being able to shape their decision making and planning for their business. Mm-hmm. And I gave you an example of that around the seagrass earlier. Um, but another example is that we've worked with them to get um oceanographic monitoring stations basically placed at the oyster farms. So there's quite a few oyster farms now in California where you can sort of think about like a weather station that we'd have on land. There is that kind of station, but in the water. So it's monitoring temperature, salinity, pH, oxygen, all the things we've been talking about in this conversation. Um, And so the oyster farms are basically hosting, you know, physically hosting these sites where, um, public monitoring is taking place for us to understand what's happening in the ocean. Um, and so, the, you know, in this case, Hog Island Oyster Company is providing quite a lot of infrastructure, like physical space for these instruments. Mm-hmm. They're doing some of the maintenance on the instruments. Um, and then we share in some of the maintenance tasks and the data are posted publicly um, through something that's called the Central and Northern California Ocean Observing System. And so, you know, anyone who's interested can go on to their website and see a portal of sort of all the real-time ocean data. So if you're a surfer or a fisherman yeah. um, or just an interested member of the public and you want to know, like, what's happening in the ocean, you can go online and there's all these sites of data. And quite a few of those at this point are being just sort of hosted by these industry partners. So it's become really important way that um, the ocean farming community, the sustainable um, shellfish community, and sort of the academic research community are like, you know, meeting and and like um, sharing resources and sharing knowledge and creating something that the public can use. Is that where you as like academics hope to be able to show industry why we need to focus so much more on the environment. Be like, hey, we are measuring these tangible changes. This is how it's going to impact your business and the future profits. And sure, you might be able to pollute more now for next quarter. But when when you come five, 10 years down the line, this will cause you a serious harm. 
is this like the goal of a lot of these partnerships and showing, hey, academics and industry can work together to really one, clean up the world and two, make you more money? Yeah, I mean, I like I think that where you landed there was excellent. I think, you know, most of these partnerships that I've been involved in, the um, sustainable shellfish farming industry is, um, first of all, like very interested in the sustainability aspect mm-hmm. of their business, and also already very, you know, like very aware of these issues. So I, um, it was less about me coming to them saying, like, you need to know about this. It was actually more about them yeah. coming to us saying, we're worried about the same thing that you're worried about. Mm-hmm. You know, can we work together on that? But I do think it's a model for, um, you know, broader partnerships that university members um, can think about participating in. So I think thinking about um, partnering with people where the outcomes are mutually beneficial, where we like sit around a table and think about like, you know, what are you worried about? What affects your business? What affects your bottom line? What affects your ability to employ people locally to pass this business on to your family? Mm-hmm. And then how does that overlap with knowledge that I that I can also bring to the table so that we are, you know, the, the partner is bringing knowledge to the table and the university is bringing knowledge to the table and we're thinking about what we could do together. Yeah. And, and specifically to your point, thinking about what we can do together to address challenges and make the world a better place yeah specifically yeah 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 i think we're definitely getting close to a point where that shift will start to grow at a really fast rate Mm -hmm. and then in some of your papers that we looked at to prepare you mentioned how that relationship with business is great but it's not all we need government intervention Mm -hmm. do you have any advice for students on just how they should i guess view policy and that relationship with government and academia because sometimes i think students can kind of get lost in that balance of government isn't listening. They don't really, they look at it more Mm one-sided. It's such a great question. I um, sometimes do this exercise in my own undergraduate classes where I ask students, when you think about government and policymakers, like who are the decision makers in the world? And we make a list on the board, right? And it's like, you know, Congress is a decision maker and the president is a decision maker and the Supreme Court is a decision maker. And it it trickles down to, you know, people start to see, well, there's also local, okay, there's state decision makers. There's also decision makers in my county or the town that I live in. So we eventually start trickling down to like things that might feel more local. But one of the points I try to make there is that every student in the room who can register to vote is also a decision maker. Mm-hmm. Now, not not all students are able to vote in the United States, but everyone who can register to vote is a decision maker. So we have to list ourselves on there too. Like there actually is some, um, we, we do actually have the power to change things, even though it feels dilute at times. And even if it's not just our own vote, like we have the ability to improve voting access to other people. So working for organizations that expand voting rights is a way of um, like, you know, using our decision making power. But I would also say to students and like I think about examples about this at UC Davis, but I think it applies at universities generally. There are classes you can take that like bring you into the community in partnership with community organizations or with government organizations. There are internships, there are paid internships where you can go, you know, work for a nonprofit organization or a government organization and get right into where some of those decisions are happening. 
So I guess I would encourage students to think about the things that they can do to actually become engaged in that like in that in that local community that they're in in the decision making community that they're in um because i do think it can feel like it's really distanced from us but it's actually it doesn't have to be um you know the people on the local town council are elected by the members of the town let's you know let's get involved in in local politics if that's what you want to do yes, very important message i think yeah and then another kind of broader question when we're preparing, you had many different roles that you've played at Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, to list a few, you had the president's postdoc fellow, associate vice provost of academic programs and public scholarship, as well as a professor and a mentor. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could talk about kind of that balance of playing different roles and having different hats, as well as with the postdoc fellow, kind of what that program is and what it meant to be a mentor. Sure. So, I mean, I think maybe I could start with that. I was very lucky to be awarded a UC President's postdoc fellowship as I was exiting my graduate program. And that's what supported my first two years at Davis as a postdoctoral researcher. And that program supports um, scholars who are you know, trying to push the excellence of their research program and also trying to improve access, diversity, and inclusion at the University of California so that we are really serving the needs and the mandate of our mission as a public institution. Mm. And so everyone who's supported that program by that program is thinking about both their scholarly work and how we make sure that the university is truly accessible to as many different people as possible. And um, I was deeply invested in that then. That was 20 years ago, still deeply invested in it. So I've served um, on the advisory board for that program for many years, and I've now mentored two postdocs mm-hmm. uh, myself through that program. So I've been I've been able to sit sort of on the other side of the table where I am supporting and mentoring uh, early career researchers who are at the beginning of their academic careers. Um, and frankly, those folks are really changing the way the university does its work. And it's it's wonderful um, to be involved in that. Um, so that, so that I, I was then able to start in a professor role and I have been a professor at Davis since. And then three years ago, I started in the role as associate vice provost in public scholarship and engagement. And this is an office, uh, on the UC, at UC Davis that serves, um, the entire university. So every discipline, every department, every aspect of the university, Um, And we aim to basically improve our ability as a university to partner and connect with communities outside the university. Mm -hmm. So we are trying to improve the the public impact of research and teaching and scholarship that's done at the university. We're trying to support students, staff, and faculty who want to build those connections outside the university, who want to partner and and sit down um, with community members or government officials or industry members and say, how can we work together? How do we leverage the university knowledge and your knowledge and and do something, um, you know, for for good. Definitely. Um, and so that's really fun because, I mean, as you can tell, that's something I've cared about quite a lot in my research and teaching through my whole career. 
And now in that role, I basically get to support other faculty and Mm -hmm. staff and students who are doing that work. So I get to be the behind the scenes person. I get to, you know, provide logistical support, financial support, things like that for for projects and partnerships um, that that improve the university's connection to the outside world. And then when you're thinking about trying to connect with more people, are we trying to redefine what success looks like in science, especially in regards to climate change? Yeah, I mean, I think this is where sort of all of the threads of this conversation start to weave together, right? Which is that climate change is a big systemic problem. It's not a problem that I alone can solve or you Mm -hmm. alone can solve. It's going to require big systems changes. We're talking about changes in our energy system, changes to our economy. Um, But at the very center of that is impacts on people, Mm -hmm. which we actually haven't really gotten to talk about very much. But Mm -hmm. And that's not like, it's not my area of research. Like I don't study how climate change impacts people, but I'm very aware that people are at the center of this. People's decision-making is at the center of this, but also issues around justice and equity in our country and globally will be will be and are being challenged by climate change. And so we can't really separate people from this problem because mm-hmm. it's impacting people. Yeah. A great resource for people will actually be one of our podcasts with Professor Warwick Vincent, and he studies Arctic ice and how the Inuits are being really impacted. And their right to be cold is like one of their taglines. Mm-hmm. And so he gets really into all of that. So that's another great place for people to hear a bit more about it too. Yeah, I would also, you could add in your show notes, there's a wonderful book by um, Sila Watt-Cloutier and it is called The Right to be Cold. There we go. And um, so she really, I think, you know, probably started that conversation around that and it's a great book. Um, Yeah, so I mean, I think we have to be thinking about, we can't separate the ocean from the people, right? People, People are very connected to the ocean in many different ways, including um, we live near the ocean and many people are dependent upon the ocean for their um, their livelihoods, for their food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as we think about, you know, we've had, spent a lot of time in this conversation sort of thinking about this as like impacts on organisms or environments, but part of what's being impacted is us and our yeah. communities. And um, some communities are being disproportionately impacted. Oh. And so we have really, that's, so when we think about changing what science looks like, I think part of that conversation is about seeing all of those connections and seeing that, you know, our conversation that we're having today is connected to that conversation mm-hmm. about the Arctic and it's connected to environmental justice mm-hmm. and it's connected to, um, you know, when you have conversations with economics professors, these things are all uh, threaded together. Certainly. I think the ocean, there's stats out there of the trillions of dollars that depend on the ocean's mm-hmm. health and vibrance. And then another interesting one was very recently a nation, an island nation like the South Pacific? Tuvalu. Tuvalu. Mm-hmm. There we go. Became the first digital nation because the sea levels have ris- risen so right. much. Yes. So there's plenty of resources people can find and we'll tag a bunch of them on your website. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then looking at this, like for students that see that there's a massive problem and they don't really know what to do because they think they're one person. Do you have any advice? I guess a twofold question. One for a student broadly who might not be in university, but just a curious person how they can get involved and make a difference. And then as well as at Davis, 
if a student is interested in you know being a part of the change, especially with regards to marine science at Bodega Bay, mm-hmm. what opportunities are out there? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the first one, this is going to sound like I'm oversimplifying it, but I sort of feel like the first way to get involved and make a difference is sort of like learn about the ocean, become committed to conserving and protecting what we have, and then maybe pick something locally that you feel like you can do. Um, We didn't really get to circle back to this, but like plastic pollution, Mm -hmm. huge issue, like maybe learn about ways that we can stop that pollution before it ever gets to the ocean. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there are ways, I I think people have... um, like sort of an inherent connection to the sea. I think even people who live nowhere near the ocean like feel attached to it, which is wonderful. And so I would encourage people to just think about, you know, what do you do with that attachment? Like take action. Mm-hmm. Um, for Davis students, um, yes, I would love to just tell you about this wonderful resource we have at Bodega Marine Lab, which is that we offer summer courses, um, both in summer session one and summer session two, we're currently brainstorming an expansion to fall. So there may actually be fall courses offered in the future. And you can come live out here in our housing and take those courses. There's also um, options. We're aware that not everybody can do that. So the sessions are set up so that there's options that like, if you could only come out one day a week from Davis or from the Bay Area, there are some of the classes that are set up basically for commuting students. So you can come out like one or two days a week for six weeks and you get the, you know, the full summer experience, but you don't have to give up your summer job or your summer housing or things like that. So you don't have to live out here, but you can. Um, And those courses sort of run a full spectrum. There's a wonderful um, marine ecology course that's taught. There's a course about global change ecology um, from sort of this marine perspective. There's biological oceanography. There's coastal oceanography. There's ecotoxicology that looks at sort of pollutants in the marine environment. And like I said, there's we're looking at expanding. So there will be sort of even more course offerings in the future. That's amazing. And then as we wrap up here, could you tell us about your book? Oh, yes. So we've touched on um, a lot of these topics today, but thank you for bringing this up. I do have, um, in about a year, a book that will be coming out um, from and, and from Columbia University Press. And the current title, although the title has changed multiple <laughs> times, but the current title um, seems to be Oceans of Change. And it's a book that I uh, co-wrote with a journalist. And we sort of move through a sequence of different ocean environments. And we talk to people who are observing how much the ocean is changing and what that means to them and what they're doing about it. And so... You know, it. Uh, we talk about tide pools and kelp forests and the open ocean and the Arctic um, and the deep sea. And we connect with people in each of those cases that are, um, are observing, are watching, are acting. Um, and it's not always scientists. Scientists are like, you know, play a big role in the book. But we also talk to indigenous community members, um, fishermen, aquaculturists, conservationists. So it's really, we often tell people that the Ocean is the main character of the book, but the ocean needs a voice. And so there's lots of voices in the book that are telling us about what they're seeing. Sounds like it's going to be a very beautiful book and tell a lot of powerful stories. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Professor Hill. Thank you so much. It's great having this conversation with you. Thank you. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.